Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. By now, you've probably heard of the legal and public relations battle between Apple and the FBI. In short, the FBI is trying to force Apple to unlock the phone of one of the San Bernardino shooters. But Apple is unwilling to comply, saying that doing so could endanger the privacy of every iPhone user everywhere. This dispute will play itself out in the U.S. legal system, but the result will also have profound international implications. On the line to discuss the global consequences of this dispute is David Kay, the U.N. Special Rapporteur for the Freedom of Expression and a clinical professor of law at the University of California, Irvine. David Kay recently wrote a report in his role as Special Rapporteur that assesses the relationship between encryption technologies, the varying policies of governments around the world towards encryption, and the protection of human rights. Encryption, he argues, is a key protector of the freedom of expression around the world, for reasons we discuss in this episode. Now, I should say before we start that I am thrilled to have David Kay on this episode, not only because he is an expert in encryption technology and the freedom of expression, but because he's a regular podcast listener. I love the fact that listeners are becoming the interviewees on my podcast. And he's not the first. We've had a few other listeners chime in and tell me that they are an issue area expert in something that's topical and then I should get in touch with them. And that's how this episode happened. So if you want to get in touch with me, if you are an expert in some topical issue area, hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or send me a note via globaldispatchespodcast.com. And I do believe I have the smartest, most worldly audience ever in the history of podcasting. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Okay, now here is UN Special Rapporteur and Law Professor David Kay. The FBI wants access to the to the content of the phone. You know, they want the the data that, you know, anybody who has a smartphone knows your phone has data, whether it's contacts or digital. Uh, traces from where you've been and so forth. Um, but the problem for the FBI is that the the phone, like hopefully most people do, uh, the phone is password protected. It's a 5C, so it doesn't have the, the fingerprint protection, but, it's, uh, but it does have password protection. Like a four-letter, a four-number PIN? It could be four-number, exactly. It could be, you know, you, you can customize and, you know, go to 10 digits or more. Um, and the problem for the FBI is that if they're going to, uh, you know, start to try to, to guess the, the password, you know, it, it gets progressively slower to, to open as you, uh, fail, but uh, as you fail to get the right password, 
but worse for um, the worst thing for for the government is that if they do it, I think it's ten times the 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 iPhone gets wiped. You know, it gets it gets erased. And one of the problems for the FBI there is that there was a moment when if the phone had been plugged in, uh, you know, to an outlet at a place where it recognized the Wi-Fi, so at work or maybe at their home. Um, the phone would have backed up to iCloud automatically. But there was, for some reason, I think San Bernardino County changed the, the password, I think on the advice maybe of the FBI. So so they don't have the backup. And the backup that's in the iCloud would be unencrypted. So ah. that would be accessible. But they don't um, have that. But they don't have the backup. And the last backup was something like six weeks ago. Like I mean, like many of us, we don't always back up our, our phones. Yes. Apple so, is constantly reminding me to do so. Exactly. So, so Farouk, like many people, um, or, you know, intentionally, who knows, um, didn't, didn't do that backup. So, so the only data that they can get, at least from the phone is on the phone, you know, from the last mm -hmm. say six mm -hmm. weeks. And so from the FBI's perspective, um, you know, they want to know, you know, does that phone have any information on it that would either help with the investigation or I think more likely help with um, the prevention of future attacks. You know, was he in contact or were they, uh, Farouk and his wife, um, in contact with any, um, you know, ISIS or other, other terrorists? Um, and so I think that's, that's the real, the conundrum for the FBI is how do they get the information on the phone without, um, you know, uh, without going through the passwords and, and risking losing all the data. And so they've so, asked. Mm -hmm. yeah, so why is Apple objecting then to, so, uh, mm -hmm. to, to helping out the FBI in this one case? Yeah. So I think that, um, I think that, uh, so Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, um, released a, a statement last week. It was sort of a letter to customers that explained the, the position that, that they felt they were in. I'm not a technologist, so I can't get into the details of the technology. But um, but on the technology side, my understanding is that Apple could do what is asked of them by the FBI. And what, what the FBI is essentially asking, what the order that the FBI got uh, from a magistrate judge, so that's a, a level below a district court judge in the federal court system, so basically entry-level judge, let's say, um, that judge ordered Apple to essentially create software to allow um, to allow the FBI to to bypass this problem of you know multiple attempts of the password that would ultimately wipe wipe the phone. And so Apple is saying, I think a couple of things. I think one is they're saying you know we can do this, but uh, at least technically, um, but. But they're most concerned, at least the way I read Tim Cook's statement, they're most concerned with the precedent that that sets. Because what, what it does by um, asking Apple to essentially create new code um, is essentially, I mean, two things, really. So one is the, the legal precedent of the government asking a company to you know, conduct this kind of forensic work for them when the government could probably probably do it itself. That's what I understand from technologists. I mean, they could ask 
you know, the, the smart technologists at the NSA, for example, to help them out. But I think the, the bigger concern from, uh, from Apple's perspective is not just legal, although it's very much a, a legal precedent problem. Um, it's also the problem that what, they're, what they seem to be saying is if we create this code in this instance, uh, we risk um, allowing this software to, to be available to, um, to criminals, to hackers, to foreign governments who could then make all of our devices, uh, whether it's you know, this particular iPhone or other iPhones in the future, make them all vulnerable to attack. So I think that's one you know, critical kind of technical but also security problem that Apple is extremely concerned about. That Basically, if they do this, they're saying they're creating, they would create a master key. Uh, that exactly. Could potentially unlock any iPhone, and if gotten, gotten in the wrong hands, could compromise all Apple users' um, it, security and privacy. It, exactly. I think that so that's that's that master key problem, or even the potential of them creating software that the software gets out and it provides the clues for how future people can crack an iPhone, um, an iPhone security apparatus. Um, that that's a concern of theirs. I think the other really big concern, I guess there are a couple other really big concerns. One, another one is um, if they provide this uh, to the U.S. government, um, what is their argument to other governments who do not have the same kind of uh, legitimate, say, national security need, but have some other um, domestic legal uh, reason by which they can ask Apple for this kind of um, security uh, circumvention, so that's that's a serious concern for them. You know, they have a hu- they have huge markets in places like China and other places where, you know, security is simply not um, not valued and privacy is not valued. So they're extremely concerned about that. And tied to that, you know, there's this discussion about Apple being concerned about its brand. I think that's overdone. Um, I mean, I think that that the brand that they're creating is one that is about security and privacy. So it just happens that there's overlap between what people want and um, what people should expect. And so they're creating devices that are secure, and they're concerned, um, I think legitimately, that if they create this kind of software, they create this kind of vulnerability, um, people will begin to see, I think rightfully so, that... um, you know, Apple phones are not as secure uh, as mm-hmm. um, as they had been led to believe, or as as secure as they should be. Now, so the U.S. government uh, basically places very little to no restrictions on how encryption can work in in private settings. Is that right? As opposed to other countries, I know you've right. written a report for the United Nations under your role as the UN Special Rapporteur that takes a look at how different countries approach the question of uh, encryption, which is basically what this, this debate between and this, this legal argument between the FBI and, and Apple is all about. Um, so can you describe, I guess, how other countries around the world um, approach this question of encryption and what this Apple versus FBI case might impact how other countries approach their questions of, of encryption? Right. So that's, that's an important I think starting point that the United States at the present moment um, does not restrict encryption, um, and and also you know to back up just slightly, what the what the government and what the court is ordering Apple to do isn't strictly speaking asking 
um, Apple to break the encryption, but is asking access to the password. The implication there, though, is that once the password is broken, things that might be encrypted on the phone um, would be accessible. So they're essentially the same. So the United States, um, many other countries, I would say allies of the United States um, in in Western Europe, um, you know, and and other places around the world, um, don't uh, don't restrict encryption at all. Really, there are some export control issues, but we could put that those to the side mm-hmm. for kind of military grade encryption. But by and large, um, the extremely strong encryption that we get on. Um, things like, uh, you know, if somebody has a PGP key, public key encryption, that's easily accessible to people in the United States and in Europe and, you know, frankly, elsewhere in the world. Um, and the U.S. US law does not restrict that. There was a fight over this in the 90s that came to be known as the crypto wars, um, where the government was actually, um, you know, the Clinton administration proposed uh, creating what was called a clipper chip, which was essentially a backdoor into encrypted communications, and the technology sector and the emerging, you know, ICT information and communications technology sector uh, essentially defeated that because um, without encryption, we have insecure. We have an insecure internet. We have insecure digital communications generally. So, so this is in a way kind of the second war in a way because. The FBI, since um, since 2014, essentially um, has been, uh, and, and some other local law enforcement, in particular, uh, the district attorney in New York, Cy Vance Jr., have been calling for um, essentially backdoors, or another way to put it would be just restrictions or vulnerable um, encryption. Um, and so that's that's in at least in the U.S. context context that's where this issue is arising, but around the world. Uh, encryption is actually even more under threat. So there are countries um, that that simply uh, prohibit the use of encrypted technology, or um, more usually, um, they require that encryption be weaker than we expect, say, in the United States. So there are different levels of encryption, and you know, governments might say either we want the encryption to be um, to be breakable and therefore weak, or we want backdoors into it and so forth. So there are many countries that that do that, and um, you know that's that's the environment in which uh, I presented my report to the Human Rights Council last June. So what was, countries? Which which countries have a sort of outright ban on encryption? Well, countries like um, you know countries like China um, have uh, ban it, and then other countries. Uh, like uh, like Pakistan and and several others, and I'd have to go and look at the list. I don't want to name some and leave some out. But um, basically, there's an alignment, I would say, between countries um, that uh, restrict freedom of expression generally and um, and and restrict particularly um, political expression and dissent. I would say there's an alignment between those countries and the countries. Uh, that or an overlap, I'd say, between those countries and the countries that um, that restrict encryption. So, um, so uh, just just um, out of curiosity, yeah. then, like, how does someone use an iPhone in, in China? Yeah. So, um, so far, um, from and I don't know the details of how um, individuals use use their phones in China, um, but I th- my understanding is that in China, 
individuals have access to their phones. Um, the, um, the iMessage, uh, so when, when I use an i if I were to send you an iMessage, for example, in the United States, that communication from end to end, from me to you, is encrypted. So it's not necessarily, in, depending on your device, it may not be encrypted when it's at rest on your phone, but as it's sent, it's encrypted. Um, my, um, my suspicion, and I don't know this for sure, is that um, in China, uh, the government has, um, uh, has figured out how to, to see, let's say, uh, those communications. I don't know if that's, if that's actually true. Um, and I don't know if China has uh, made that effort to do it, but they could make that effort to do it. And under new cybersecurity laws that China adopted last year, um, that would be uh, completely available to the government to do. I think, you know, there may be some concerns among the Chinese government that if they make their phones insecure generally, because I think this is a critical point, um, encryption isn't just about, um, you know, keeping our communication secure. Encryption is also about keeping our, um, you know, our, our communication with our banks, communication with our healthcare providers and, and so forth secure. I mean, that's, that's the technology that is used in order to maintain our privacy and the security of our financial information. It's how banks communicate with one another as well. So I think, you know, some governments, big governments that have real financial stakes um, in the digital age are, are in a way put in a bind because they may want to crack uh, the encryption and create backdoors in order to have access to individual communications but the risk is that you know they make their um, their entire communication system susceptible to to major vulnerabilities. So, how have countries used either weak encryption systems or bans on encryption to suppress dissent or violate freedom of expression? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the main way they do it is um, is essentially by um, by being public about the fact. Um, that communications are not going to be um, encrypted and um, and therefore chilling individual use of um, encryption technologies, right? Because if you know, for example, let's say you're a journalist and you're trying to protect a source. Um, normally, you know, you would say, let's, let's use an, a, an encrypted channel, which is, you know, pretty easy to set up. Uh, and, you know, we'll communicate that way, the journalist and the source. Um, but if you're in an environment where um, that encryption is not available or the, the use of encryption can um, kind of spotlight you for, you know, the authorities, then you're not going to use that. So I think there's a lot of communication that is chilled or that is being channeled into other um let's say other venues, maybe face-to-face that are even riskier for, for journalists or for activists um, because they can't use um, encryption technology. Another, another way, and we see this, we saw this actually in the case of the Zone 9 bloggers. In um, Ethiopia. In, in Ethiopia, exactly, where um, Ethiopia in the charge sheet against the Zone 9 bloggers, right? These were, you know, bloggers, people who were basically journalists um, who created a kind of blogging collective and we're reporting on all sorts of things, but especially, you know, political news. Um, they were, um, they were arrested, held in prison, most of them for, for well over a year. Um, and in the charge sheet, the very fact of their training 
in encryption technologies uh, was part of the case against them, that they are using this, so they must be trying to hide something. Uh, and I and believe so, they were charged with terrorism, right? I mean, so yep, so there you go, yep. right? It's 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 um, kind of comes back to the San Bernardino case, but exactly, uh, exactly for the, the the where you have a government using unscrupulous uh, for unscrupulous reasons, charging journalists with terrorism. Well, this is an important point. Um, you know, in the context of uh, of San Bernardino, we might all agree that this is a terrorism case. Um, the problem is that other countries um, have really quite vastly expanded the category of terrorism, or let's say national security, so that, um, and, and maybe to back up just slightly, the way I view the use of, of, of these technologies is through Article 19 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And Article 19 protects the right you know, to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas of all kinds. But the ICCPR also allows for restrictions on uh, expression when, um, when you meet basically um, three conditions. One, it has to be provided by law. Two, uh, the restriction has to be necessary and proportionate. And three, the restriction has to be for a legitimate objective. And those legitimate objectives include public order, national security, rights and reputations of others, uh, um, for example. The problem is that the, the legitimacy of restrictions on national security I think is is really called into question by the fact that governments almost always now use national security as the excuse to restrict expression. So whereas in one instance, say San Bernardino, the legitimacy of the reason may be completely valid. In another case, say Ethiopia, they'll use the concept of national security, and yet the case itself has nothing to do with national security. It has to do with you know, protecting the government, um, often protecting the government from insults, um, protecting the government against, uh, by, you know, by using claims such as sedition in the context of, of Malaysia, um, or, you know, insult against the government or against the monarch as in Thailand. So, you know, there's been this vast expansion. So it's very, um, it's, I think it's very important to see the issues around encryption in this broader context of how governments are expanding the um, scope of their restrictions uh, pretty regularly. Uh, well, David, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for being a listener to this podcast. Yeah, no, it's, I, I will uh, continue to be a listener. I love, I love it, it when yeah, I love what listeners you're doing. reach out. I love it when, when I, I feel like I have like a really good listener base. You're, I think, probably the third listener I've interviewed who is just like an issue area expert on a really interesting topic of global concern. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to David. And I did mean that at the end. You guys are pretty much the best, the smartest, the most worldly cohort of podcast listeners there are. And so feel free to get in touch with me anytime with anything on your mind via globaldispatchespodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. And if you are a regular listener, I do recommend, suggest, urge you to leave a review on iTunes. It helps other people who are similarly interested in these kinds of global issues discover the podcast. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.